It's so, I think it's very human to, to try to explain other behaviors, but I won't, don't want to do it, but it's... Welcome to the Breaking Bias Podcast, formerly Diversity on Fire, the show where we explore stories and experiences of people from all walks of life. We're on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue in an effort to challenge bias and cultivate connection. I'm your host, Heather, and joining the conversation today is Frederick Tusaham. Frederick is an archaeologist specializing in the Scandinavian Viking and Vendel Age, podcast host, skeptic, and apparently he's sometimes even funny. Welcome to the show, Frederick. Thank you for having me, Heather. Before we dive in, I always like to start the show by having the guest share a little bit about themselves personally. So outside of the work you do, and really we like to start with your kind of your origin story, so impactful events, uh, family history, politics, religion, anything within your early years, so, you know, 25, 20 or under, that happened that you feel like shaped your life. Yeah, so I'm from Sweden, which my name might um, hint at, so... We're not really a religious country per se, so I grew up mostly atheist and still am to this day, which of course shapes some of my views on the world. In my teenage years, I um, got involved with a lot of um, music, especially punk music, so I also have a very left-leaning uh, politic uh, idea. Um, maybe more left-leaning than many Americans <laughs> perceive as uh, left. So, But then, so of course, all of this, you know, music, friends, uh, going to concerts, going to protest, discussing racism, discussing sexism, ableism, and all of that in the formative years, of course, shape how I view the world later in life, too. So I have a lot of history there from the music, from my friends, from the books, from my quite early age, very left-leaning, wanting to go forward, being pro-women's rights, pro, well, everybody rights in the end, but uh, trying to uh, tear down the walls that we tend to build around race, social class, um, lock each other in certain groups and all of that. But um, I also struggled with mental health in my formative years, quite a lot. Had a lot of. Uh, I was even on, in the hospital for quite some time because, um, well, I had a very deep depression, which, with a lot of, well, healthcare and a lot of great friends, I managed to get out of, and all also a, a dependency on drugs on that. So I lived a quite hard life in my teenage years. And then things uh, went uh, up and around 22, I moved from Stockholm, where I grew up and lived. Broke with most of my world there because I needed a clean break. I moved to Gotland, where I started to uh, study at a very small university in a very small uh, city. Type of, you know, everybody know everyone or small uh, Compared to Stockholm or other locations I lived, there's 
It's a very small city called Visby on Gotland. I started to meet other people. So one of my best friends was a conservative during my studies. So we had a lot of talks trying to influence and discover the world together there, which I, of course, helped me, you know, look at things from different perspective and get out of a quite black and white worldview that I might have had before. Grayscale, I still have similar ideas that I had as a teenager, but I look at different opinions and ideas and trying to find what's the best for the situation and not ideology, the best solution to something. I first want to say thank you because that is probably the deepest and most, I don't want, I think, I don't think vulnerable is the right word, but that's the, the deepest backstory I think anybody has given me in the three years that I've been doing this. So first of all, thank you. Second of all, there's a couple of things that you said that I'm I'm really interested in. So first of all, I, I'm in the U.S., uh, so it's so so different different atmosphere entirely. But I'm curious because you say left of left. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what does what does that mean when you say I mean, that? When I look at American politics and compare it to the um, political parties we have in Sweden, even our right wing or you know bit left of the American Democrat Party. So, you know, it's still left of the American left, so to say. But ideology would be some sort of um, syndicalism or socialistic idea there. So it's not a communist or anarchist, but it's in the borderlines between being a social democrat and a communist, basically. Okay. Okay. So another thing you said is that, um, you know, the country itself is not necessarily, um, a country known for religion. And therefore you, you, you were, you consider yourself or did, I don't want to imply, uh, atheist. And that's interesting to me. So why would you pick atheist as opposed to agnostic? I had a lot, that discussion a lot with atheist. And as a scientist, the most honest would be to say I'm agnostic because, you know, we can't really know for sure. It is a proper answer, and but I feel it leaves a bit too much to the religious extremist. And I feel it's better to say I'm atheist because right now I don't think there is a God. And that's my honest opinion. I'm open to be proven wrong, but my current opinion is there is no God. Therefore, I'm atheist rather than agnostic. Interesting. And I'm not, it's not about a challenge on, on anybody. Everyone thinks what they think. Yeah. The way I perceive agnosticism is that it is not necessarily an acknowledgement of a God, but acknowledgement of something bigger than ourselves, some other higher order, higher power. And Yes, often people ascribe that and and label that as God. It's not it's just not how I perceive it in terms of when I think of agnosticism, I think of I believe in something more than my human flesh as opposed to atheism believing that we're all just skin, bones, dirt, stardust, however that plays out. And I know that's a scientific thing. So again, I'm not trying to argue it. It's just 
it's an interesting thing because I've not heard of that. And it's not what I would, it's not where my mind would go when I think of non-religion. It's kind of like when I think of atheism, it's like the antithesis of religion. It's kind of where my brain wraps around it. But everyone's got a holistic view of this. Um, I'm curious how all of everything that you shared and just kind of your life experience, what drew you to the exploration of history and not just history, but the mysteries of the world? Well, it towards history, it's, you know, one of those old interests as a child. So I always loved reading as a kid and especially the history fantasy books. And then astrology felt as the most... I mean, history, you get to read all the books, all the exciting histories, but I feel it's more towards uh, those people who had access to writing, meaning the upper classes, meaning that you often see one perspective while archaeology, while not my, it's not a perfect way of exploration and you need to use a lot of different things, but through archaeology we can access everybody. So it equalizes the history medium to show everybody in the society, not necessarily just those who had access to writing at that point in history. This is this is something that I find really interesting when it comes to science and history. I'm always I'm always struck by people's ability to have such certainty in things. And I guess maybe that makes me the ultimate skeptic, right? Because I don't actually believe anything ever, 100% ever. But I wonder how how you would describe, because as someone that is is based in science, but is also a skeptic, Hmm. how would you describe the difference between pseudoscience and reality? Hard-hitting question. So (laughs) (laughs) difference between pseudoscience and most the things that becomes most apparent in pseudoscience is they're just pretending to do science. That's the pseudo part of it. They're not, most of them not aren't really trying to do science. Most of them are just disguising uh, different beliefs. So I'm most into pseudo history, pseudo-archaeology. And if you look at the big names in pseudo-archaeology, make it be Graham Hancock, uh, Eric Van Daniken, they seem to deal with history if you just read it on a surface level. But when you start to go through their sources, go through the, you know, the deeper meaning, we start to find an esoteric uh, foundation that they have. So they lean more heavily on writers such as Helena Blavatsky from um, uh, the Theosophy movement and um, Rudolf Steiner from the Anthosophy movement. We see Edgar Cayce, the Sleeping Prophet, who kind of mix everything. So they have this esoteric foundation for all their world-building myth that they use and then go and cherry-pick the stories, the histories that kind of fit this esoteric narrative. But it's not really science that they are doing. They are pretending to do science to prove a different agenda that they are not really super honest with. Okay, so 
full transparency, I don't know any of the names that you just said. However, what I will say is something that you said earlier is this idea of history and and the question, who's writing it, right? Mm. What perspective is it coming from? What privilege is it coming from? And what perspective and privilege that what the influence is that 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 narrates that, right? Um, so when I think about it in that sense, this goes back to my question, how can we ever really know what is reality if these are the people that we're writing? So I guess my question, to rephrase it, what, what would science be to you? So if we're, if we're thinking about pseudoscience as kind of a super non, non-objective, agenda-ridden um, thing, what would science be? So science is to ask a question that can be disproven. So we can't ask, is there a God? Well, it's not a scientific question because we can't prove if there is a God. So we need to be able to say that this is true or false or we don't know. But we need to be able to, you know, from the start be able to say this is true or false. And from there, we trying to find what experiments can we do. Okay, if we want to find out if there was a village in this area. We can go out, we can look on the ground, we can see, can we see any foundation here? Yes or no? Can we see residues from gardens? Yes or no? Because wildlife will change when humans live there and cultivate the area. And we look at all these things. Yeah, it might be possible a village live here. As archaeologists, we would then go out uh, and... uh, look at phosphates. We would drill in the ground, take up dirt. We would test the phosphates in the dirt. If it's a lot of phosphates, it could be evidence of human settlement. And then we start to dig first a small one by one meter pit. If we find something, we might expand it. And if we find a house, yep, then we have a house. Then we look for other houses. And if we don't find anything, well, then it probably wasn't a village in this area. So that's something we can do to try to test, at least in within archaeology, if an idea is correct. I try to make it as simple, <laughs> but uh, yeah. No, and I think that's a, a, it's a fascinating perspective and truth that, that I think um, for myself, not a scientist by any means, but I have a business and there's this, this common meme that goes around that, you know, there's this image of this person digging, digging, digging. You can see in the image that there's about an inch left and Mm. they give up at that inch left. But on the other side of that inch is this revelational, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. So when I think about what you just shared, it just makes me wonder and it Maybe I'm confirmation biasing myself right now, but it makes me think like, okay, so if this is kind of the process of science, then I think that is the truth that we may not know because we're not fully, we're not exploring the entire, like if there's 10 meters of land, we're not exploring the 10 meters. We're exploring one meter to see if there's something there and we won't expand unless we find something there. It's a little bit of a tangent, so sorry, (laughs) but it's just something I think of in relation to that then uh, we need to think, is it worth expanding? Mm -hmm. So we might see something on the sides, but then everything is governed by money, as in all sciences. And that's also a bias that we have. 
do we have funding for it? The more funding we have, of course, we can be more to do more tests, more experiments. But at the end of the day, we are governed by a lot of different things and have to make informed decision on the information we have available to us. Yes. And that brings that 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 opens the door even more to this idea that the definitiveness of science is based on the monetary resources to explore potentially in to some degree to some degree i'm not discrediting science i love i love science but <laughs> but to some degree and i think that's kind of a really interesting thing to consider as we move forward as a society um hmm. now you specialize and you have a lot of knowledge um in the viking area specific specifically the scandinavian Viking and Vendel Age area. So I'd love to, I'd love to pick your brain on some of that information. I saw that you're on TikTok. I'm also on TikTok. And for, <laughs> for whatever reason, Vikings have, I, they've come across my timeline a lot. And, and a lot of people have a lot of opinions on what they are, who they are, where they were from, what they were doing. So I'd love to hear your perspective, um, about how do you classify a Viking? What, what is a Viking? So again, one of those difficult questions, <laughs> but um, yeah, the the short answer is, and there is discussion within the well uh, Viking research community. What should we call this? For example, as you mentioned, Vendel. I don't think many Americans know what Vendel is. So. In Sweden, we split up the Iron Age in several stages. The last two of them is Vendel and Viking. And Vendel is basically proto-Viking. And the discussion is, should the Vendel be part of the Viking Age? So we start the Viking Age instead of 900 with uh, the sack on Lindisfarne in England. The monastery famous from, if you've seen the show Vikings, is when they go to the England for the first time and uh, kidnap Athelstan and all the monks and all that. So that's usually the start date of Viking Age. But the Vendelay starts around 500 CE, meaning that we have a lot longer Viking history. And from a Swedish perspective, the, the lines between those two cultures are very blurry. So the question is, should we call it Viking? Because Viking, of course, have its negative connotation. They are these warlike raiders. They're often portrayed like. But we still need a name for the period we want to discuss, at least in research. So it's a discussion. Should we call it everything Vendel? Should we? But that leave out the Norwegians and the Danes in the discussion. And if we call it the Norse, well, then we leave out the Swedes and the Danes. And there's I I like to call it the sailing age because the Viking Age doesn't really start until Scandinavia got sails, which they got around 700 CE, which would be a better classification of the age, because they used the ships a lot. It's, that's how they built their empire, basically, or what we should call it. Empire is the wrong word, but that, that's how they got out in the world. But they were super late on the sail, but that's what the technology that defined the whole era Everything within the Viking Age basically comes down to their use and manufacturing on sails. 
This is okay. So this, I, I need to re, re, I, well, I'm reminded that I re, need to re-listen to this book. Um, and tell me if I should or shouldn't, or if there's a better book. But I had listened to of, of Ash and Elm, um, a few years ago. And mm-hmm. I, and that's something that sticks in my mind is the, um, the way that the ships were built. There was a particular way that they were built. And, but, but I, I guess I'm queuing in because you said that they were late on the sale. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, Scandinavia has no evidence of having been using sails until around 6700 CE compared to, you know, the, the Mediterranean had sails, Egypt had sails, uh, we say sails in China, India, all of these locations had sails except the Scandinavians. They used rowboats and we see it on for example, the petroglyphs from the Bronze Age, all the ships that we see, none of them has sails. They have, we can see the people on the boats, we can see how the boats look like. We have found one of the boats, but none seem to have a mast or sails. They seem to have been rown, which set, you know, differed Scandinavian from the rest of the population close to um, bodies of water. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, another thing that I wonder about con- when, when we relate, um, a, a Viking culture to other cultures of that time, I'm curious w- what knowledge you have in term that's related to how the Viking culture differed in terms of gender roles, sp- gender roles specifically and religion as opposed to other cultures and in, in areas of the time. Again, it's very large construct we are working with here, but uh, what we know about the Vikings, except from the archaeological material, is predominantly written by outsiders or people outside the group, meaning that we're going to see them from an outsider's perspective, which in some cases are quite visible in the sources. So if you look at the Christians describing uh, the attack on Lindsfarne, it's, you know, basically these uh, brutish uh, devils who come and uh, slay everything. And if you look at the Arabs like uh, Ibn Fadlan, who describe uh, Swedish Vikings, he or probably Swedish Vikings, he met in uh, Volga. They are uh, dirty. They are, uh, you know... He described them as uh, very vile, uh, all of that. Um, If you really want to wash away the idea of the noble Viking, you should read his account because he is not kind at all. They are sexist, they are um, sexually assaulting their slaves regularly, and they are just uh, described as a very vile and horrible people, very unclean and all of that. And his perspective was a religious one. Is that what was his name again? Uh, Ibn Fadlan was Arabic uh, diplomat, so he has a Middle Eastern uh, viewpoint on it, and he seems to focus more on the cleanliness. And I know that Islam do have a different view on cleanliness. So again, is he describing it from his bias because they are washing or uh, taking care of themselves in a non-haram uh, way or is it that they actually behave like that 
because if we compare it to other to the British sources, we have another scholar who described the Vikings as very clean, very well groomed, so well groomed and clean that the British women are just throwing themselves at these Vikings, leaving their husbands basically. And um, yeah, the poor British people, uh, yeah, don't really know what to do about it. So we have a bit different accounts on these people. And then we have some Norwegian uh, scholar, um, Snorre Sturlason, for example. He wrote one of the Eddas, but he was a Christian, which is important to remember. He wrote it quite late in the 12th century CE. If I'm not completely mistaken there, or century, in the 1200s CE. So what's that, 11th century? We don't really do centuries much in Sweden, so I always have to count. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he's after the Viking Age also. Even if he's basically Norwegian, he's still an outsider writing about a different religion, a different culture to some extent. Okay, wow. So my so I'm thinking about how how you talk about your skepticism and I I brought up my own skepticism and our need and ability to think critically and hearing what you just shared about the different historical accounts from different perspectives that you were very fair with it, but I won't be as fair. I'll say vastly different. They were vastly different accounts. They were portraying a different people entirely depending on who you spoke with. Why do you think it's so important today for us to look back on, you know, that's a very, a very distant history, but even, even close history to be super skeptical i was going to say critical critical but skeptical about it because we know that forces who do not always want to do good will use history as a way to get people riled up and um, abuse the history for their own again then we see this very clear on especially you brought up tiktok and uh, i you well as I really do pseudoscience, but I have on TikTok shifted to do a bit more Viking content because there's a lot within a neo-paganist movement from the right wing that want to hijack the Viking narrative to uh, promote this idea of a superior white race often. And it gets a bit more darker when you look at it from the perspective that they're trying to get the Vikings to be indigenous to North America. So we know about one settlement in Lausanne's up in northern, north, northeastern uh, Canada, where there was a short-lived settlement. But they want to move them further inland, in mainland America. That way they can argue that these groups should have the same group as the indigenous people of America to get some sort of victimhood. So this is why it's critical we look at history and learn it and actually being thinking critical about it and what we hear told to us about it. So what are the questions that we have to ask? We have to ask, who's telling the story? Hmm. 
what so so specifically who they are, but not just who they are, but what is their perspective in terms of what is their status in life and what might be their agenda. I guess when I think about all of this, um, it leaves me with continued skepticism because we can't necessarily know. All of it is our own perspective um, kind of projected onto them, I guess, maybe to a certain degree. So when we think about what is pseudo versus what is reality, what is our mm, – what is the most honest way for us to get there considering our own bias? To start, we must acknowledge that we have a bias, which science will be, not always, but most cases, will be quite open with, okay, if I want to look at this more, I will need more money, I can only do this much currently. And we always say this is the knowledge we have right now. And that's the issue with science is that if you ask a scientist a question that they don't know that's the question you will have i don't know we can look into this together and uh, see if we can find but from the current uh, understanding with the current technology with the current climate with the current finances we don't have the opportunity to look at this now while pseudoscientists will have a ready answer for you they don't do I don't know. They don't do let's go and find out together. They tell you this is the truth. And uh, if anybody tells you something different, well, uh, they are not correct. And they don't give you any sources on it. You just kind of have to take your word off. And one creator that honestly just said that you don't need to know my sources. You need to know that I told you this. Anything else doesn't really matter because I'm your source. So this is the difference from a scientist that will happily share the sources if they have the time, because <laughs> we can't sit down with everybody even if we would like to, but if they have time, they will try to explain it and give you more resources or tell you where to go, what courses you can read if you find it interesting. And that's the difference. We're not trying to sell you, we're trying to help you. While the pseudoscientists will have a ready answer and try to sell you their narrative, their book, their course, their lecture. Of course, science will try to sell you their books too, because many of us do write, but that's usually not the main point if you come and ask somebody. Well, I don't know about anyone else listening, but that makes me feel better because I like the idea of people being just honest and saying, I don't know, but I also know that societally, and I'm speaking from my own super small perspective, right? Mm. But people, uh, there, there seems to be this tendency, this need for definitive answers, like, and that's why it's attractive to listen to the, the creator, which I happen to see what you're talking about. Hilarious, by the way. But that's why it's attractive because this person is confidently saying, you don't need the source. I'm the source. Hmm. And why? Like, why are you the source? That doesn't make, to me, that doesn't make sense. I don't know why it makes sense to anyone else, but I also do understand why it's attractive. Because if you can, if you can accept that person as your source, then you can be lazy and stop asking questions, right? You can get your answer and you can feel comfortable with that whether it's right or wrong so yeah but that's human to want to know for certain that's why we make up these myths these explanations why we 
trying to find our place in the world. We don't like uncertainty. Nobody wants no, you know, want. We want our reality to be real to us. We want to understand it because we don't really do gray scales. It's a strange human condition we have, but being aware of, well, I don't know everything and that's fine. I think it's a great first step towards a skeptical journey. But that's the thing of being skeptical. You can't really relax at any point. You always have to go and check the sources. Because if you start to look at it, there's a lot of things that both you and I probably think is true that probably isn't, but we haven't just looked into it because we're currently comfortable with these um, these uh, with this knowledge. It might be that it helps us understand our reality in some way, but it can also be uh, that it's just something very small that we don't really think about. You know, should you swim 30 minutes after you eat or should we wait? Or, you know, doesn't really matter, but it's um, for many, it's just, oh, we shouldn't just swim. Okay, we sit and relax. We have a conversation and we get something out of it anyway, even if it's not really true that you should wait. And that's why I at least always try to have some sort of humility towards the pseudoscientific believers because many of them aren't in this for notorious reasons many of them are being fooled and we also have this idea of a pedagogy of luck not everybody have the same access to education to knowledge to resources i i know how expensive research you know some sources is to buy to get a hold of and some don't have access to library in this time or don't they don't have access to well-equipped libraries. And I know reading scientific journals is not something most people can do. Scientific literacy is very slim. And again, you need to have the access to education, which some people don't have. So we should be quite humble. There is... Um, one philosopher called uh, Aaron Rabinovich, who talk about this pedagogy of luck that we can't really control what we know, but we can help other achieve education by being humble and show some empathy towards them and be honest and open with our answers. Yeah, and even... <laughs> I've recently been humbled. I started taking a, a medicinal plants course and I have access to the information and I am still being greatly humbled because I read it and it is a different language. The scientific language is not um, necessarily accessible on first try at least. So I think mm. it's so important to recognize that with ourselves and Speaking of the gray area, I think what's really interesting, and I want to share this not as a, not as a boastful point, but just as a point to kind of allow people to recognize that it is possible. I would consider myself a pretty type A personality. However, in recent years, I've been able to tap into this love of the gray area. And while it's so scary when you're in a certain mindset, it's actually also really freeing once you can get there. So this idea of not knowing, 
to me at this point is more freeing than it was to think I knew something that I actually didn't know. Um, and that's just, again, just to share for anyone in this weird spot. Um, now I want to talk, I want to switch gears slightly, not totally, but I want to talk about your podcast. So your podcast is Digging Up Ancient Aliens. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a play on or a challenge to the well-known show, um, Ancient Aliens, but I think that's the actual official name of it. Yeah. Where you're kind of challenging kind of some of what they go through and challenging it in your own skepticism and just looking into what they're doing. But tell me what your goal is with the show. So the goal is to use a popular idea because, I mean, it is interesting with aliens and this idea that there might be something out there. We're not alone. And it's titillating, but at least me, I want to know, is it something out there? So I want to find it myself and, well, with my background in archaeology, kind of natural, you know, perspective. And I want to share science and how to do science and how to approach this subject and do it in a way that it's kind of interesting and I also want to, well, challenge these people to, uh, well, actually show the evidence for aliens in a proper way. But um, I'm going in with this from the start quite as humble as I can, as neutral. I'm less and less have these neutral glasses, maybe, because after a couple of years of seeing these ideas and as I said, I f- dug down to the foundation of them. It's not really worthwhile to pretend to have this neutrality. But to get there, you have to start neutral, which I feel that I've built up. Uh, I think uh, the guys from Knowledge Fight also investigate... Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, the really angry uh, conspiracy podcaster oh god i don't know (laughs) infowars infowars oh god wait no i should know this he's like big he's a u.s person he's a yeah he's super big i listen on two talks to about him this week okay hold on a second hold on a second (laughs) let me look it up alex jones alex jones alex jones yes oh my god he was the nut job behind like this conspiracy theory about a, a school shooting that happened mm. like two states over from anyways, this is a totally different topic, but <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. There's this other show behind the bastards yeah, or knowledge find, sorry, knowledge fight that they, they inv- investigate. And I listened to a talk from one of the hosts this weekend. I was at QED in Manchester, a skeptical conference. And he talked that he would not be able to be able to be such an expert in um, Alex Jones without having this neutrality going in with it, which I reflected on because that's how I went it. But then he had lately shifted. I know that this guy also was one of the expert witnesses in Alex Jones' trials recently. So he's really, you know, well, <laughs> well versed in Alex Jones. But I feel that we need to have this neutrality and I'm still trying to have this empathy and humble towards it 
it's not that I stand there in, or sit yelling into the microphone how racist or how stupid this is. I'm taking the, their claims. I look through them and see, well, what does the evidence say? And then I present the findings and trying to, at the same time, teach you how you can approach these, what error are we looking at? So, yeah, it's trying to be a science communication circle around ancient aliens might be the best way to describe it currently. Not only ancient aliens, I also deal with Atlantis and all of that fun stuff, pseudo-history too. (laughs) Man, I appreciate that though, because I'll I'll tell you, um, it's not, it's not easy. And I think everybody can understand that it's not easy, but I have these conversations that I'm looking to prepare for. P.S. You're not one of them, but some people that I'm looking to prepare for and I start to dig in and I'm like, Oh, I don't want to talk to this person. (laughs) Like I'm, but then I have to stop myself. Right. And I, and I don't say it out loud and I say, okay, how can I back up and how can I look at this in a different way? Because Hmm. regardless of whether we disagree or agree, this person exists. Their, their opinion is out there. So it, it's important to try to dive into it. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate the podcast and the attempt to kind of give people a different method, methodology, should we say, to kind of think through things to, to hopefully think more critically on them. Yeah. And I do I have so many more questions I want to talk about paranormal and aliens, but unfortunately we, we don't have time for that maybe uh, a a pin in this and we can reconvene another time or we can just tell everybody to head on over to your podcast and check that out um to kind of get a little bit more info there but are you ready for the final three questions so the first one is what biases do you have and how do you challenge them i've been thinking about it and i think I struggle quite a bit with attribution bias, trying to explain other behaviors and something I always try to look out onto the show. And when I get these questions, do you think the people that you're looking into believe the things they are believing? I would like to explain their behavior, but I feel that I can't really do it because it's colored with my view. But it's so, I think it's very human to, to try to explain other behaviors, but I won't, don't want to do it, but it's, you know, I have to think every time I, you know, go on the keyboard and then, oh, I think he does this. Oh, like, nope, I have to start over, go back. But being conscious that I can't speak for anybody else, but uh, it would be nice to do sometimes. Wow, that's and that's so perfect. And that literally just kind of plays on what we were just talking about, um, about this uh, need for us to acknowledge our perspective in the scenario and know that that's not necessarily the other person's perspective, that we're we're tainting all of it with our Mm. own view. Um, So the second question is, what are five words that you in your current phase of life personally connect with? So it's uh, a feeling that I'm in very creative period. So I'm feeling creative. Um, I have two kids. I feel a lot fatherhood 
going on there. But also I have curiosity, education, and hope. Very good words. Very good words. And then the last one, where can everybody connect with you, learn more, stay in touch? So the easiest way is to head over to diggingupancientaliens.com where they find the show, all the other stuff, or they head over to Archaeological Podcast Network. There, There's links to my show too and a lot of other great shows and resources. I am on social media, always digging up ancient aliens everywhere. Uh, put it in Google, you find me. Dealer's choice. <laughs> Excellent. So we'll make sure to put that in the show notes and digging up ancient aliens. Regardless of anything that any of us have talked about, this should be fascinating to everybody. Specifically, and this is uh, kind of an aside, but it's it's so interesting to me that in the U.S., over the last three years, but even recently, we've had congressional hearings where they're telling us about unidentified objects in the sky and the general public's like okay cool no big deal we don't we don't care it's wild to me does this happen in sweden does this happen worldwide or is no but lot from what i understand on some of those hearings there are mostly stuff that ufologists have heard before as i understand it and it's not really evidence it's often i heard from a guy who heard from a guy type of stories which is not really what the media reporting so again we have to check our biases and a quick little note there for example the mexican alien that's been on the news quite a lot what's been left out from the media narrative is that the guy presenting them has been caught with human remains smuggled from peru two times before trying to create aliens and this one when x-rayed also contained stolen human remains okay so uh don't steal humans and uh don't believe everything you hear i guess that's that's what we can wrap up with is be (laughs) be skeptical skeptical. (laughs) yes so i i really appreciate i just want to say thank you so much for not only coming on and having this chat with me but sharing your knowledge on your podcast and just being a skeptic and a critic that's willing to explore these things because I just don't think that enough people are doing that. And it's not about trashing history. It's about really trying to understand things. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you, as always, for joining on another episode of the Breaking Bias podcast. I hope this conversation today with Frederick helped you see a new perspective, gave you some tools and maybe questions to ask yourself to ensure you're thinking critically about the information that is being told to you. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that were expressed on today's episode, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Connect with Frederick by going to his website, diggingupancientaliens.com. You can also find that link in our show notes. You can connect with the show by heading over to our website, which is breakingbiasedpodcast.com, where you'll find all our social media links and other important resources. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love your feedback. Head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. If you haven't already, please be sure to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going. Mm-hmm.